Well, hey, if you have a Bible, and I hope you do, open it to Ephesians chapter 2. We are going to take a little break out of our series on Nehemiah. We have been working our way through the Old Testament book of Nehemiah, and we're going to continue that next week. We're going to be working on Nehemiah chapter 9, and we'll be done with the book of Nehemiah probably early December. But on this baptism and celebration Sunday, I wanted to take a little break out of Nehemiah because I think it's good for us as a church to continually come back to the essence of why we are gathered here today and why we call ourselves Christians and why we're even bothering to organize as a tribe of people gathered together called the church. And the essence and the reason for that is the gospel, the good news of Jesus. And so um, we never want to stray from that. The gospel is not the beginning of the Christian life. And then you move on to other things. The gospel is the Christian life. And you just grow deeper and deeper into it. And so today I'm going to share briefly out of what I think is maybe the most clear passage in the New Testament, in the scriptures, that explains the gospel in its totality. And I'm just going to unpack it for us. And then we're going to respond in a little bit more worship and communion will be available and prayer. And uh, then... Then we'll eat on the front lawn. In fact, maybe after this message, somebody in this room would need to get baptized. The water's still warm. Uh, You may not have a change of clothes, and it's chilly outside, but um, you'll remember it. There's no doubt about that. (laughs) Well, um, hey, before we read this passage and I expand on it a little bit, um, can you just put that How Deep the Father's Love for Us song up there, Christy? Did you catch the words of this old, beautiful hymn that we sang for the first time maybe ever here? How deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure, that he should give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. How great the pain of searing loss. The Father turns his face away, meaning he turns his face away from Jesus who became Sin on the cross. As wounds which mar the chosen one. Bring many sons to glory. What amazing words. What amazing words. How deep the father's love for us. But let me pray and then we'll get going on Ephesians 2. The title of this message is but God. Two of the sweetest words in the entire Bible. Lord, as we open up your book and as we celebrate the proclamation of the gospel through water baptism. And as we sing these songs with these incredibly rich words. And now as we open up our Bibles, these books that are gathered together as one book that comprise your inspired, completely true, without error, sufficient revelation to us. We admit that we need to be roused from our sleep. And so, God, would you do what only you can do? Would you give us the illumination of the Holy Spirit? Would you take hard hearts and would you make them soft to your words. Ultimately today, God, what we need is not help or tips on how to live better. 
we either need to be rescued from death or we need to be reminded if we've already been rescued of how great that rescue was so that we will continue a life of worship in response to not just a spiritual guru, but the king of all things, Jesus. So God, would you take these incredible words in Ephesians 2 and would you pry open our hearts and would you stamp them on us? And would it produce two things, I pray. Number one, would it cause people in this room who do not know you as King and Savior and Lord, would, it, would you use these words, as Peter says, to cause them to be born again? And secondly, God, for those that already are born again, would it stir up worship in our souls so that you would be glorified and so that we would have great joy? And I pray this in the name of our great God and King, Jesus. Amen. Well, Ephesians is written to a group of people very much like us, probably not much bigger than us, that are probably huddled in a house church or a small place. And this is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to them. And this is, by the way, if you're a new Christian and you're looking for a book to read, I would recommend obviously one of the Gospels, Mark or John, probably first would be good. And then in conjunction with that, I would read Ephesians, one of the great descriptions of what Jesus has done for us and then how we are supposed to respond to it as a church family. And so we're going to pick up in chapter two, and it starts off with a rather stinging endorsement or analyzation of the state of mankind. I want to ask and then answer three questions today as we work ourselves through this verse Let me read it, Ephesians 2, verse 1, and we'll get to those three questions as we go. Paul's writing to the Ephesians, but don't let it be a letter written to people a couple thousand years ago where it says you, let's put ourselves in in that text. He says in verse 1, chapter 2, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, verse 3, among whom we all, all of us, every person in this room, the good little church boy, the jihadist terrorist that is strapping bombs to his body in the Middle East, in whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And listen to this sentence. It is incredibly unpopular in a narcissistic society, but it is everywhere in the Bible. Listen to this phrase. It says, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Three verses, one sentence, talking about the Ephesians, talking about us, and talking about everybody before, in between, and after. The first question that I want to ask us today that we need to understand, to understand the gospel, is what is the condition of our souls before we receive Christ? What is the condition of our souls 
before we receive Christ? Well, if you just follow what has just been read to us in this scripture, what Paul wrote, the answer to that is not that we are sort of diminished or that we are um, in need of some tips to live better or that we have been marred or, or, or sort of marginalized by sin. But the answer to that is that we are spiritually dead. The Bible says that all of us have sinned and that we have fallen short of the glory of God. And, and then a few chapters after that, in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, it says that the wages of that sin is death. In Romans chapter 5 and verse 12, it says that through one man, meeting Adam, all sin, through him sin came into, it's rebellion, it's, 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 it's disobeying God's law, both written and the law of the conscious. And it, it brought with it some consequences, and that consequence is spiritual death, separation from God. Now let's stop here for a second, because this, we live in a culture that probably has a tougher time realizing this than any culture in the history of civilization. And the reason why is because we are in a, as I mentioned before, a narcissistic, self-absorbed culture where everything in our marketing, in our TV shows, and everything we consume is pushing us towards this message that we are okay and that we are good. In fact, you may have grown up in a church where that was sort of the subconscious tenor of the message. But before we can get on to the incredibly good news that's at the second half of this passage, we have to embrace the incredibly bad news is that before we come to Christ, all of us are spiritually dead. We are separated from Christ. Our sin, which we tend to minimize because we compare our sin to the next guy, but that's not really the comparison we're supposed to make. Our sin is compared to Jesus. Our sin separates us from God. All human sin. And so to answer the question again, the state of mankind, the state of every person in this room before they come to Christ is spiritual death. We are dead. We're dead. We're corpses. We're physically alive. We're emotionally alive. Some of us may be very, very alive in many ways, but spiritually we're corpses. We're corpses. And what are the consequences of this? There's this word in here that, again, is wildly, wildly unpopular. In fact, if you were reading a book on how to start a church and get a bunch of people to come, there wouldn't be a chapter on this. And that chapter is preach about and teach them about the consequences of sin. And the answer to that is the wrath of God. It's a hard phrase, isn't it? Again, we don't think that we're people that deserve wrath. Because, again, we're judging ourselves by a human standard. And when you see that word wrath in the scriptures, I want you to think in terms of not of God's being mean, but as God being just and good and right. You see, we think, well, why would God pour out wrath on me? I mean, all I've done is, you know, messed around with my girlfriend, got drunk in my frat days, you know, downloaded some stuff I didn't download and been kind of a gossiper. How does that compare with the murderer or the terrorist 
Well, think about this for a second, about really how good God is in judging with his justice and wrath all sin the same way. I'm not saying that all sin is, is necessarily as consequential, but think about how good and actually righteous and benevolent God is in pouring out his wrath on all sin. Think about the scale of human goodness. Let's say for the sake of argument that on the worst end of human goodness is Hitler. And then think, just for the sake of argument, I'm not saying uh, save Jesus other than Jesus, who we know was fully man and lived a perfect life. Let's put on the scale of human goodness Mother Teresa. Okay? So we've got the best of humanity, except for Jesus, of course, and we've got the worst of humanity. I think all of us would probably say that we are somewhere in the middle of that spectrum. And you may be like, bro, you don't know me. I'm a little closer that way, actually. But let's just say we're we're somewhere in between Hitler and and Mother Teresa. Okay, so I'm here, and Paul Fincher's here. We're like right next to each other. Or maybe he's here. Let's let's give him let's give him the benefit, right? He's he's here. Okay, if if God were to divvy up sins and it were based on human righteousness, if goodness, if salvation were based on human righteousness, where in that scale is the line? Think about how unfair it would be if the line was boom, right here. Between me and Paul. And Paul's like, dog, sorry, bro. I mean, that day when we were walking by and I helped the old lady with the groceries and you just kept walking. I did it. (laughs) Peace. (laughs) I mean, think about, you talk about unfairness. Unfairness is calling my life righteous compared to the terrorist in the Middle East. That is unbelievably unfair. But God doesn't do that. What he does is he pours out his wrath on all human sin. But in a second, we're going to see how he does that and offers free life. Now, before we move on in verse 4, you may say, Brad, why why do you push this point so much? Why do you push this point? I mean, come on, I wanted to come to church and the first things out of your mouth are sin and wrath. (laughs) Cheer me up. Most Americans who think they're Christians think that what has happened to them is that Jesus has kept them from bumping their head against an open door or stubbing their toe against a curb or from having a bad day. And so they are fed moralism, like Jesus has come to help you. You're doing okay. Maybe you were floundering a little bit. Your marriage was in trouble. You're basically a good guy because you live in the West. You're an American. You live in the Bible Belt. We know you're a pretty good person. And Jesus has come to give you improvement. He comes to give you the Brad 2.0. That's not salvation. That is assistance. That's, That's moralism. And so when we view salvation that way, because we don't understand our state before Jesus, our wretchedness, our sin, and the consequences even of our sin, 
no matter how small or bad it is in human comparison to other people, when we realize that, we realize that Jesus hasn't just kept us from stubbing our toe, but that He has rescued us from the justice and the goodness and the wrath of a holy God who will not put up with human rebellion, no matter what the scale. And so that produces in us not just... Oh yeah, thanks, Jesus. Like the Doobie Brothers song, Jesus is just alright with me. It produces in us what God ultimately wants in salvation is awestruck wonder and praise and a life of worshipful response because I haven't been helped. I have been rescued by a great Savior. That's why it's so important to understand that. So let's go on and let's get to the second question. This brings us to the second question because we've painted a bleak picture, have we not? What is the condition of our souls before we come to Christ? We're spiritually dead. We're corpses. Physically alive, but spiritually dead. And if left on that course, awaiting the sure and certain judgment of a just and good and righteous God. And then verse 4. One of the sweetest sentences ever pinned but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Listen to this next sentence. Verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not Your own doing. You, if you are a Christian, it is not because you are smarter than the next guy. It is because of grace that you then responded to with the necessary means of your faith. And all of that was a gift. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Verse 9. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. So let's get back to our. Question, question number one is what is the condition of our souls before we receive Christ's spiritual death? We're corpses, every one of us, before we come to Jesus. And save coming to Jesus, without coming to Jesus, we remain in that state. And we, at some point on our physical death, incur the just and good and righteous judgment of God that the Bible calls the wrath of God. The second question then is, how does God actually save us for those of us that are Christians or those of us that are becoming Christians, maybe even as I speak. Well, the first way that he saves us is he saves us through Jesus, through his work on the cross. Remember, we just talked about that God in his justice has to do something. He he righteously needs to settle the account to make it right because we have rebelled against him and our sin carries with it consequences. And so the, the wrath, the justice, the goodness, the righteousness of God is coming. And a, a sacrifice needs to be, to be offered for that sin. And we realize, because we're not good, that our lives are not worthy compensation 
for the injury against the sovereign creator of the universe. And so in response to that, God pours out his just and good and righteous wrath on his son, Jesus. Listen to this verse in Romans chapter 3. If you have a Bible, you can turn there. If not, it will be up on the screen. It's one of the most important passages in the New Testament. And it has in it a word that is one of the most important words in the English language, at least in the version of the Bible that I'm reading from, the ESV. It might not in the, in the NIV, but listen to this. Romans chapter 3, verse 21, it says, But now, again those words, The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God, meaning God will not be mocked. He will not settle for anything less than righteousness. And so the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. We know this verse, verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, verse 24, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Verse 25, this is the important part now. Listen to this really key word. Okay, so we've got human sin, and then we've got God, because he's righteous and holy, and he can't bend from that character. I mean, God, God can't gloss over what he demands, and so God needs to pour out his wrath to maintain his justice and goodness, and he does it on Jesus. Listen to this, verse 25, whom God put forth as a, this is an important word, propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. And so although in the Old Testament and although in our life, sometimes there are consequences to our sins, For the most part, God hasn't really judged human rebellion yet. He he passed over it because he was waiting for that time when on the cross, cross, he would definitely and once and for all deal with and exhaust his wrath on his son. So let's get back to this word propitiation. It is an unbelievably rich word. It means that Jesus became like a sponge, a wrath absorbing sacrifice for us. The word propitiation means that Jesus became sin for us on the cross and that God judged Jesus. All of God's justice and wrath came down on Jesus' head. In fact, the Old Testament prophet Isaiah says in Isaiah 53 that it actually pleased the Father to crush the Son because His justice was taking place by crushing Jesus for you and me. And then propitiation also means that not only did Jesus absorb all of the wrath, He exhausted all of the justice of God, but He then turned it into favor for those who would receive Him and trust in that sacrifice. I know you guys, I hate to do this because I'll throw out this example and this is all you'll be thinking about the rest of the day. But I know some of you are infomercial freaks like me. And um, when you can't go to sleep, you stay up past 12. Back when we were kids, remember they'd play the national anthem at 12 o'clock midnight and then the TV would go blank and you'd have the color bars beep. And that was it until like 6 o'clock in the morning and there was like the U and then 2 through 13 and you actually... Watch this, kids. You actually had to get up and turn 
the TV dial. But now infomercials come on, you know, late at night. And there's that one with that rag that soaks everything up. What is it? The sham wow? Or is that sham wow? Is that what it's called? All right. Who has actually bought the sham wow? I, I know there's somebody in here that buys a bunch of. Okay, we've got well, at least one. Okay, you know the sham wow guy. He pours like four liters of coke on the table, and then he takes one little rag and it like miraculously absorbs. All of the Coke. For those of you that have bought the ShamWow, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. We have a testimony here that it doesn't actually work. But here's the good news. Jesus on the cross actually works. What, what Jesus, see listen, what Jesus is doing is he is absorbing. He's absorbing all of the punishment. He's absorbing all of the wrath. He's absorbing all of the righteousness of God with not one drop left over and then he's reflecting it into favor and kindness and goodness for those that would believe. So, a couple things are happening here. Number one, God's remaining just. He is staying good. He's not being the guy that looks the other way and lets something pass by. He is maintaining his standard. And here's the other really good news that if you're a Christian... All of the wrath of God, all of the justice, all of the punishment for your sin, past, present, and future, has been absorbed and relinquished and exhausted. That's why Paul writes in Romans, Therefore there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So if you're a Christian and you're still fretting or worrying or shameful about something that you did three years ago or four years ago or five years ago, you are living according to a debtor's ethic. You are missing the power of the cross. You need not have that shame anymore. You may still have to deal with the consequences of that shame, but the justice of God has been brought out to bear on your sin, for your sin, in the person and work of Jesus on the cross. That is spectacularly, spectacularly good news. That should bring joy to our souls because here's the key phrase. If you're an alcoholic and you may still be struggling, struggling with alcohol, you used to be an alcoholic, right? The punishment for that has been absorbed. If you're a lustful, wretched, sexually broken young person who has messed up your life and are guilty about that and wondering whether God can ever use somebody like you that has done that? The answer is yes! Because God's justice has been absorbed by Jesus. Because He became the pornographer on the cross. He became the adulterer on the cross. He became the pedophile on the cross to absorb the punishment for that sin. So you need not walk in that anymore. That should produce... That should produce great joy. But none of this means anything. Unless we understand the answer to the third question. And the third question is, for what does God save us? Let me get back to, actually it's not the third question. This is question 2.1. So take that third question off. How does God save us? This is really important. He saves us through Jesus' work on the cross. Then he saves us through the preaching of the word. Okay, the gospel must be heard. 
Romans 1 verse 16 says, Paul writes this, he says that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to all those who believe. Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 23 that you are born again through the living and abiding word of God. Paul writes to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 22, I think it is, he says that it, it pleased God through the folly of what was preached to save people. And so the gospel, the good news of Jesus, what I just explained to you about what Jesus did on the cross and then rose again in victory over that, that is, that's a piece of news. It's a proclamation. And that, that spoken word saves people. So you are saved by the hearing of that word. It becomes, it becomes earmuffs, boys and girls, earmuffs now. For those of you that haven't had the talk, it becomes the fertilizer, the power, the conceiving element for the dead, lifeless egg of our life. And it brings life. But it must be. Now, how does God save us? Does he just knock us over the head, do the work on the cross and preach the gospel and all of a sudden people are made Christians? No, he does it through faith Ephesians 2 verse 8 and 9 says that by grace you have been saved through faith and so we have to unpack that a little bit faith involves more than just believing a set of facts or agreeing with a set of facts it involves actually trusting in those set of facts and so faith just a minute ago remember I said we're spiritually dead dead people can't save themselves. So how can a dead how can a dead corpse exercise faith? Well, miraculously through the gospel, and this is the miracle of the rebirth, the gospel hits the dead sinner's heart. And God, I'm going to use an old English term here, God begets you. He causes you to be born again. And simultaneously you believe. You have faith in that message, in the work of Jesus on the cross. What comes first? Well, I think we err a little bit when we try and divvy it up too much. But let me put it to you this way. Dead people can't have faith apart from the begetting, apart from being born again. And so the begetting and the believing are simultaneous. But the begetting causes the believing. And you're thinking, oh, Brad, my head hurts. (laughs) Just... Think of it this way. Where there is fire, there is heat. Right? If I were to light a fire, there would be instantly, simultaneously, heat. But we wouldn't say that the heat caused the fire, even though they're simultaneously there when they're there. What causes the heat is the fire. And so the word of God comes and causes you to be born again. And simultaneously, there's faith, there's trust, there's acknowledgement, there's agreement. And where there is fire, there is heat. Where there is, where there is a born again person, there is faith, there is belief. And so, what does that mean? If you're, if you're feeling the heat right now of belief, if you're starting to say, hey, whoa, I've never got it like this before. Do I believe in Jesus? Is this really true? Am I a Christian? I've rejected this up to this point. That's heat. That's heat. That's saving faith. That, that faith, that means there's fire burning in your soul right now. That means very likely that you are being 
born again. And so now bring the heat, the heat of belief, of saving faith. And saving faith, this is important. We're wrapping up here. Saving faith includes three things. It includes not just knowledge, but you have to know the gospel. You have to know what I just said. You have to understand what Jesus did on the cross. You don't get saved because you have had a really bad decade and you want to get your life back together. And, oh, I'm just going to come and I'm going to start going to church and I'm going to start giving and I'm going to... Well, good, but that doesn't save you. You say, you get, saving faith includes knowledge in what Jesus did on the cross, agreement in the fact that that is the only sacrifice worthy to bring us back to the Father. And then here's the critical element. When the Bible uses the words faith and belief, it includes in it this concept of trust. Trust. It, it includes standing on it. I am trusting that this mantle, what is this? This ledge will hold me up. You see, but I can believe I can, I say, I have knowledge that there's a ledge there. I agree that it's sturdy enough. But until I actually stand on it, until I actually line my, until I actually put the weight of my life on that truth, it won't hold me up. Do you see that? Because there are thousands of people in this world who think they're Christians simply because they acknowledge cognitively the facts of the gospel, but they haven't lined their life up with it. They haven't trusted it. The Bible says in James that even the demons believe and tremble. But they're not standing on the truth of the work of Christ on the cross, the message of the gospel. That then diverts, absorbs and diverts the wrath of God and turns it into un, inexpressible favor. So how is a person saved through their response of faith, through knowledge, agreement and trust? And then finally my question three, and we end on this. Why does God save you and me and those that put faith in Christ and what he did on the cross? Verse 10 answers that question. Let me get to it. Ephesians. It says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So God saves us, I think, for two reasons. Number one, so that he would be made glorious in the world for his glory. God, God saves us so that he would be made great. It's, it's a self-glorifying thing for him to do to save us. God, God saves us for that reason. In fact, all through the Old Testament, he will say to Israel, I am rescuing now from your folly for my name's sake. In a self-absorbed, narcissistic American culture, people tend to think that God is up there like he's got a little clover and he's just waiting for us to decide on him. He loves me. He loves me not. And we sort of subconsciously present a gospel that is man-centered, as if the highest order in the universe is God's love for us. No, that's the second highest order in the universe. 
the highest strength and value and order in the universe is God's love for his own glory. And as an outflow of his love for his own glory, he chooses to maintain his righteousness by pouring out his wrath on his son and offering the free gift of eternal life to all those who would respond with saving faith. And so he saves us then for his own glory so that we would spend the rest of our life not just having a one-time hit at youth camp on Thursday night, chalking that up as our salvation, but then, then we would spend the rest of our life serving him, making our life a response to him, and I'm not talking about signing up to be an usher. Have we not boiled down Christianity to how you can serve the church on Sunday morning for an hour and a half? Stick a fork in my eye if that is Christianity. It's the rest of your life. It's how you live. It's how you parent. It's how you handle your money. It's how you handle your sexuality. It's how you handle your vocation. It's how you live. It's how you handle distress. And it's how you handle success. It's everything for good works, for the display of His glory we are saved. So that God would be made right. Not so that we can do a church service. But we do need ushers, so I mean, you know, I'm going to sign up for that. But you see, let's expand it. Let's expand it. Come on, for your whole life. And, and I end with this, not only for his glory, but secondarily for our joy. There's a dirty lie, a dirty trick of Satan that says, yeah, become a Christian. But then life after that is pretty much stale. You know, it's full of don'ts. I mean, basically, in the Bible Belt, we've boiled down Christianity to a list of morality. Lists, you know, no rated R movies. No dancing. <laughs> I don't know where that one came from. The Bible's full of it. No drinking. I don't know where that came from. The Bible's full of it. Just don't get drunk. No pleasure with the opposite sex. I don't know where that one came from because the Bible's full of monogamous marital love as being for our great and unbelievable joy. You see a young person that is burning with passion inside and cannot wait to get married. God has not given us these regulations, whether it's sex or alcohol or whatever it is, not so that we would not enjoy these things, but so that we would enjoy them appropriately because that way is always better than the broken way of this world. And so God saves us. And by the way, I speak from experience because I've tasted it on both sides of God's law. Just about everything there is to taste. And it is so much better God's way. So God saves us for his glory and his joy. The question is now, have you received that? Have you received that? John says, the Apostle John in John 1, to those who believed in his name, to those who received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. I'm not asking you if you're a member of 
First Baptist, Second Methodist, Third Presbyterian, Fourth Assembly of God, or Fifth, my dog is bigger than your spiritual dog, Holy Temple on the Most High, Hezekiah, Hamana Hamana. I'm asking you do, you, do you know the gospel? Have you received the gospel? If not, bring the heat. Believe. One thing we don't really do here very often is get into this mode where we kind of have you raise your hand and say a prayer. Not that that's bad, but I think sometimes that makes us, it sort of gives us a false assurance. Like if I just do this one little thing, I'm saved. No, there's a moment of conception. There's a moment when you're born again. But whether or not that's really true or not is in the mind of God. And so if you're truly born again, if you truly exercise saving faith right now, which is knowledge, agreement, and trust, your life will begin to bear fruit in line with that. Will you be perfect? No. Will you still struggle with sin? Yes. But I'm not going to give you some final moment here by letting you raise your hand and say a prayer because that will potentially trick you into thinking that that's all there is. Are you becoming a Christian right now? Believe. Believe. Talk to somebody about it afterwards that knows Jesus. And then begin to bear fruit. Begin to bear fruit. The guys are going to come play in just a second. Believe. Confess. Step out on that ledge and trust Jesus. And bring the heat. Because there's fire there. Is that you? Do that. Are you already a Christian? But you've been lulled into sleep into thinking subconsciously that Jesus kept you from stubbing your toe? Or do you realize, as we sang earlier, how deep the Father's love for us, that he would make a wretch like me his treasure? Jesus, thank you for the cross. Thank you for the free offer of the gospel. Thank you that you were not bound by anything that I could do in my deadness. But you freely, through your grace, because of the love, the great love that you had for us, saved me and others in this room in Christ. Now, Lord, would you show us the immeasurable kindness today as a tribe of people gathered in Jesus' name? Would you show us amazing kindness by causing those that do not know Jesus to be born again? Would you be pleased to take the folly of what I just said and save people with it. And then God would, those that are in this room that are not born again, would they respond with saving faith? There, I heard somebody say the other day, I'm a Christian, I'm just not a born again Christian. There are no other Christians other than born-again Christians. So have you received him today? Have you brought the heat?
of saving faith. Do that right now. Say, Jesus, I believe you. I believe you. And I trust in the cross alone. Christian, have you done that long ago? But basically your life now is full of recreation and pleasure. And the thing that really moves you is 20-year-old boys and pads and stock markets and 401ks and political parties? Or have you taken the time today to really consider how deep the Father's love is for us? You see, God wants more than just our church attendance and our 20-year-old testimony. He wants our daily, new, fresh, worshipful good works so that He would be made much of and so that we would have great joy. Father, would you help us now? Whether we are being born again or whether we already have been, would you help us respond to you in a way that would make you glad? And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, let's all stand. We're going to sing a few songs of response and worship. Communion is open for you to receive on your own. The bread represents the broken body of Jesus. The juice represents His spilled blood for us. It's a time when we remember the cross and we examine our lives. Maybe if you're a Christian, you need to do that today. If you feel like you've believed the gospel for your salvation for the first time today and you want to talk to somebody about it, a few of us will be down here. We'd love to. Or maybe you've been a Christian for 60 years or 6 months and it's grown a little mundane and today the Spirit of God has shook you and you need to... You need to again let the fire burn and feel the heat of saving faith in your life. And you need to respond in worship. Let's do that for the next few moments. Let's respond.